Well, your Bibles are opened up to John chapter 14. It is good to be able to see so many of you and and, uh, see some faces I haven't seen in a while. There are some visitors here, and warm welcome to all of you that are visiting both here in person and still online. I don't know about you, but I never thought I'd pray so much that God would remove an affliction from me more than I pray to have this to be off my face eventually, but all in God's time. I want to talk to you this morning, if you are new to our church, I've been doing this series called Conversations with Christ as we make our way through the Gospel of John. And the reason I titled it that is because John's Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, nobody has conversations with either a person or a group or a crowd more than the Gospel of John. Over and over and over again, Jesus is conversing with men and women. And so it's this conversations with Christ. And I guess what I want to do today is I'm going to watch the clock because the one thing about this passage of Scripture, if you listen to it as Jeff read it, it is absolutely loaded with beautiful, powerful, encouraging stuff. And there's so much of it that I just am not content to put on the editing room floor. So I'll watch when I get to a certain time, I'll stop, and then we'll just start it again next week. But... What I want to start with today, considering we are in the process of coming out of lockdown, we've started transitioning into phase one here in Newfoundland, I think three provinces just this week on July 1st went from almost lockdown to nothing. I was a bit envious of some of those provinces in British Columbia and Saskatchewan and Alberta where they've eliminated physical distancing and masks and everything and talking to some pastors and their churches are all back together. And uh, while I've been thankful for how our government has handled things, I can't wait for us to be able to take the masks off, be together, and contrary to Jen Percy, shake a few hands again. Um, That's an ongoing joke with me and Jennifer. But you know what? I have often said since this thing started that I felt COVID-19 would do to our planet or happen to our planet in three different waves. I felt there's the pandemic wave, the actual disease itself of COVID-19 and what it has done and ravaged and taken so much life and caused so much havoc around the world. But then will come the economic wave. And I think we're already seeing that and feeling it. There's lots of talk in the news about inflation. We now have gas here in Newfoundland. That's the most expensive since 2008. And it seems that every time I go to the grocery store, something's a little bit more money. But then's going to come the mental illness wave when everybody discovers just how they've been affected mentally and emotionally by all of this. And so I want to ask you this morning, as we think about what Jeff read for us in John chapter 14, what do you do? What do you do when you're in doubt, when you're in pain, when you're frustrated, when you are wondering how to handle what it is you have to handle? How do you react when you doubt someone or something? How do you handle it when you doubt yourself? When you're questioning your own reaction to life or your own emotional response to things? Because the reality is we live in a world like this, don't we? I think the one thing that Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram and Twitter and texting and emails and all of this has done has made us very aware of the fact that there's a lot of doubt in our world. A lot of misunderstandings. There's a lot of being unsure. 
a lot of questioning. And all of these feelings and all these thoughts affect us emotionally. We get anxious. We get discouraged. When it really comes on us, we can even get depressed. We can feel frozen by fear. And when you are incredibly doubtful or anxious or you're struggling, then one of the reactions we can often have, and we see it all around us today, is we can get defensive. We can lash out. We can demand answers to our questions, and then we find ourselves asking the same questions over and over again, and then many of us are tempted to turn inward. If you're frustrated or discouraged, if you're feeling isolated and alone, if you have all this pent-up desire and need and it's not being meant, then you can think, this depends on me. I've got to figure this out. I've got to come up with answers. And so we struggle with trust. And often, the vicious cycle of all this is that we tend to make the mistake of doing irrational things. Let me see if I can give you an example on a personal level, and it's good that Jeff is up close here because it will involve him. The first year that Debbie and I moved back here to Newfoundland after spending 15 years in Prince Edward Island, Jeff convinced me to take, well, he took Grace, and I took Abby and our middle son, Jordan, and we went out to Petty Harbor, and we did the zip lining course. We uh, had a wonderful time out there. It was a great thing. But we did this, and it's 10 sections of death-defying zip lines at various lengths and speed from what seems about 20 feet off the ground to what I'm sure has to be in excess of 400 feet off the ground. And when we arrived at the registration center in Petty Harbor, everybody is registering, and we have to do the obligatory signing of the waivers for insurance coverage. But then this young little guy looks at me and looks me up and down, and he's looking me up and down in a way that people shouldn't look you up and down. And he says, excuse me, sir, I'm going to have to ask you to step on a scale. That's never a pleasant experience, let me just tell you. And he says... Our insurance only allows us to have people up to 250 pounds do the zip lining. And I went, uh-oh. So over I went, very trepidatiously stood on the, on the scale, and I weighed in at a solid 249 pounds. <laughs> so now there's an awkward pause. He's looking at me. I'm looking at him. He's looking off to his uh, right and I can see over there that there's somebody looking, and they're staring at each other, and I realize this must be the lady that's in charge. And after a moment, she's staring at me, he's staring at her, and all of a sudden, she does one of these. And he says, okay, you can go. Well, that did not evoke a lot of confidence. So now, we're out, and we got to suit up. we got to put the harnesses on. Abby's there. Grace is there. My son's there. Jeff is there. I'm trying to be as cocky and confident. We took lots of pictures. I got great smiles. But inside, I'm doubting. I'm looking at this. I'm not afraid of heights, but I am afraid of dying. All right? I don't like pain. Let's just say that. I didn't trust this equipment to hold me. And as we drove up the mountain, and then we stopped and I had to hike up even further up the mountain, doubts flooded my mind. The what-ifs and the how-cans danced around. But my daughter is there. My son is there. What's worse, Jeff is there. And I got to match him for coolness. (laughs) The first run was child's play. It was just a straight line about 20 feet above the ground. But I thought to myself, okay, i got to be brave for my daughter because she was very nervous. 
and we went through it, but I'm gripping that bar for all I'm worth. We get through that. It wasn't too bad. Then we came to the second run, and it was over. Literally, it it was Mount Everest. I mean, that's what it was. It looked like the string went out where you couldn't see it anymore. I didn't know what I was going to do. My daughter was starting to panic. I had to be strong for her. And my attitude was, I have no idea if this harness is going to hold me. I got a pound worth of grace. But if I get going on momentum, I'm sure this thing is going to snap. So I, my plan was to grab that bar and hang on so that no matter what happens, I'll dangle there, but I won't fall until somebody comes to rescue me. And I did that through run number one, number two, number three, number four. When I got to the end of the fourth run, the reality is my hands were a mess. I was in pain. I was tired of faking it. You know, Jeff was having a ball. The kids were having a ball. I was dying every time. And then one of the staff noticed me rubbing my hands. And he said, are you doing all right there, sir? And I said, well, you know, I'm a big boy here. I weighed in at 249, and I'm not sure I'm going to re- re- you know, rest and relax my life to a, a harness rated for 250 pounds. And he smiled at me and he said, Mr. Bray, insurance says we can't let anybody go over 250 pounds. Your harness is rated for 1,500 pounds. That was an important piece of information. <laughs> All of a sudden, and then to prove it, he told me that he was about 215. He runs off of the platform, supermans it, spins himself, and does all kinds of stuff. And then I was like, well, if that's the case, now I'm going to have some fun. All of a sudden, my doubts were gone. My understanding had been clarified. My trust and confidence in this harness was now strong. All of a sudden, I had peace. I was able to enjoy the rest of the zip lining. I was actually brave, not just faking that I was. I started running around and doing the same thing, having contests with everybody, seeing who could do it the fastest and who could do it the bravest. And all of a sudden, I trusted in what was holding me. I understood the strength and the purpose of something as simple as a harness. In John chapter 14, that Jeff read for us in verses 22 to 31, our passage is 11 disciples and they're in doubt. They're white knuckling it. They're gripping onto Jesus as hard as they can. They're confused. They're questioning. They don't understand. Jesus has told them that he's leaving He's told them that they're going to be betrayed or he's going to face betrayals, and so will they. He's told them that they're weak. In fact, he told Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the night's out. And then as you come to the beginning of chapter 14, Jesus says, oh, and by the way, don't let your heart be troubled. You see, it was like me when I was doing my zip lining. Nothing had changed in my circumstances. I was still 249 pounds. I was still in a harness. But now I had a better understanding of the power and the ability of what was holding me. And it changed my entire attitude and perspective, even though nothing about my life had changed. And here you have it again in this passage. Thomas is going to ask him back in chapter 14, verse 5, when Jesus says he's going to prepare a place for them. He says, how can we know where you're going? Then later, Philip will turn to Jesus and say, listen... Jesus, if you'll just show us that you're God, that'll be enough for us. And now when we come to chapter 14, verse 22, Judas, who is not Iscariot, 
he asks a third question in this chapter where he says, how can all this be? How is it possible, Jesus, that this is able to happen? What you're saying is going to happen. How is it possible that we're going to know where you are going? How is it possible that we can be calm, that you're going to show us the meaning of all this, and yet you keep saying the world won't get it? And don't forget, by the way, that they're in the upper room. They've just enjoyed the last supper with Christ. Jesus has washed their feet. He's established the Lord's table. And he's literally just hours away from the cross and crucifixion. Judas Iscariot has already left, and he's going to sell out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus knows all of this. He knows what Judas is going to do. He knows the weaknesses of the disciples. He knows what awaits him over the next 12 to 16 hours, the betrayal, the beating, the pain, the denials, the spitting, the crucifixion, his death. He knows all that. He also knows that in just a few days from now, he will rise from the dead. He will ascend to heaven a few weeks after that. And yet here he is assuring 11-week, confused, doubting disciples he's loving them preparing them explaining to them what's happening and before we're done here this morning i want you to realize this is what i want you to see this is what i want to want you to take with you into this coming week that jesus love and obedience to god the father the fact that jesus loved and obeyed is what will enable you, what will fuel you, what assures you that you too can love and obey Jesus, our Savior. And what's more is that when you trust in this, when you believe in this, it actually unlocks the power of the gospel in you and in me and in us so that we can actually fulfill our calling to be witnesses and ambassadors of Christ So we can now tell the world, and now the world, nor sin, nor Satan, nor death can ever, ever stop us or stop God's plan. So in verses 22, 23, and 24, if you're taking notes, I want you to notice first, Christ promises his blessed presence. So if you're here today and you're doubting, you're tired, you're fatigued, you want it all to be over. You're frustrated. You've been struggling. COVID has taken its toll on your marriage or family, at work, your finances. You're struggling with kids. You're struggling at church. You're struggling with your neighbors, your coworkers, your fellow students, whatever it is. And you bring all of that emotion to church this morning. In our passage, Jesus looks at these 11 disciples who are just as confused and doubting and wondering as any of us are. And he says, listen, I want you to know, Judas... You are never not going to have me in your life. Look at his question again. In verse 22, he says, Lord, how is it that you're going to manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Notice it's a how question. It's not a why question. Judas isn't asking Jesus here, who Mark tells us he is often called Thaddeus, which actually means a twin. He isn't asking Jesus about the resurrection. The boys don't even get that yet. They've proven that all through chapter 13 and all through chapter 14. He's not even asking a Holy Spirit question because Jesus is going to keep on explaining that in just a minute. No, this is an understanding question. This is about God's ways versus our understanding. Now stop. 
How many of you have struggled with God's way versus your understanding? Be honest. With I, I'm reading my Bible and I know what it says, but then you almost go, okay, I see what it says, but then there's, now there's my life. And I'm struggling because what I'm reading doesn't seem to match up with the circumstances of my life. What do I do now? See, I, I, I think every one of you in this room has been where these 11 guys are. Doubting, confused, desperate. Oh, they're all in. They want to believe, they want hope, they long for it, but what Jesus is telling them doesn't seem to match up with their understanding. You see, in the Old Testament for these 11 guys, what Jesus is saying about leaving and the world not knowing didn't make any sense to them. In Isaiah chapter 11, in Daniel chapter 7, in Zechariah, in Hosea, all the prophets said that when the Messiah was to come, it would be amazing, it would be startling, it would be undeniable and even irresistible. But Jesus keeps saying that the world will not know. And what's worse is that he's going to leave. And so Judas says, how can, how can this be the plan? Judas isn't the first one. Remember, Peter twice said, Jesus, I don't like your plan. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus says he's got to go and suffer and die, and Peter takes him aside and says, I appreciate it, but that's not a good plan. How many times have you and I said, Lord, I love you, but I'm not really digging this plan for my life right now, right? And so here they are. And so Judas and the 11 are confused. Jesus is basically saying, you keep telling us you're going away, and then you say, that's good for us. You keep telling us to love and obey, yet you're leaving. So how are we going to love and obey you if you're leaving? You keep telling us that we are weak, but you keep saying you're leaving. You keep telling us that we will know that you're going to send this other helper and that that's all good for us and that will help us to know you and to know God as our Father. But then you keep saying the world isn't going to recognize this. What gives? This doesn't sound like a good plan. This doesn't even sound like the Bible we read. And I love it, as is often the case, if you look at verse 23, Jesus just seems to ignore the direct question, but at the same time give an answer. Because notice verse 23, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. There's his answer. That's his full answer. He spoke of love and obedience. In other words, Jesus is saying to see him after his departure, one must love him and obey him. Another word would be love him and trust him. And then he says in verse, the last part in verse 25, 20, 24, sorry, that if you don't love him, then you won't see him. This is wild to me. If one rejects Jesus, you will not know the way, because Jesus is the way. The only way, in verse 6, right, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But unlike verse 21, if you look back at verse 21, now Jesus says, not love me, keep my commandments. He says, love me and keep his word. So what am I saying? Here's what I want you to get this morning. Simply thinking that if you report for duty, that that will somehow make you love Jesus and want to obey him, it won't. Only love for Christ can motivate you to trust him.
If you don't love him, he'll be like a religious symbol. He'll be like what Paul told Timothy. They have a form of godliness and deny the power thereof. Jesus is teaching his disciples and you and I here in 2021 that Jesus is ours to embrace, but he's not ours to hold on to. What he means by that is they were saying, Lord, we want you all to ourselves. Don't go anywhere. We don't like your plan. We want to make it so that we're safe. We want to set the terms of our relationship. And Jesus says, no, no, no. That's not how this works. Judas is very confused because it seems that Jesus is wanting them to admit their weakness, but that they understand Jesus loves them. And this is all part of the plan. Now, just look at chapter 14 again, because you'll notice this in verse 15, verse 21, verse 23, and verse 31, four times Jesus connects love of God with obedience to God. In verse 31, he connects it to himself. He says, you'll notice I love the Father, and this is why I keep his will. This is what he does. Jesus keeps telling them as well that the world doesn't get this. He does it in verse 17. He says, the world can't accept the Holy Spirit. In verse 19, he says, the world can't see what they can see. But in verse 23, Jesus says something absolutely amazing that I want every one of you to leave here with today. Because this is something I think you've got head knowledge of, but you haven't internalized it so that it's going to change the trajectory of your week. Notice what he says at the end of it. He says, if anyone loves me, he or she will keep my word. Okay, so there's the imperative. Now, what is the result of this? And my father will love him or her. Now, watch this. And we will come to him or her and make our home with him or her. Isn't that absolutely amazing? Have you ever contemplated what that means? All the way back in chapter, in chapter 14, verse 2, Jesus told his disciples, Hey, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Great, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many what? Rooms or mansions, if you have an old King James, right? He says, and I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Now, all a chapter later, he says, we will go in with him and make our home with him. Do you know that the word home there is the same word he used back at the beginning? So Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a home for you. Oh, and by the way, when you trust me and love me, I come and make a home in you. Now, I don't know about you, but that excites me. I need to hear stuff like that. Jesus told his disciples he was going away, of which Thomas wanted to know, well, how can we know the way? And Jesus said, because I am the way, Peter. I'm the truth. I'm the life. And now Judas is essentially asking, how is it that you're saying we will know you, but the world won't? And he says, because God the Father... And I, God the Son, and I will send you the Helper, God the Holy Spirit, and we're going to come and make our home in you. Do you know this is the only place in your entire New Testament where the Father and the Son are both said to indwell Christians? Think about that. In the Old Testament, God dwelt among his people. You could go to the tabernacle, and the Shekinah glory of God was there. Later, you could go to the temple, and the Shekinah glory of God was there. But in the New Testament, when Jesus goes and does what he is about to do, believers themselves are the temple of the living God. So, 
not only is God preparing a place, God is going to come and indwell you. So ultimately, what happens? Then the two come together, and this is what gives Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, such power. When John says, there was no need of a sun or light in the new Jerusalem because why? The dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. If you take nothing from this, but you head out into this week, no matter what you're feeling, what you're dealing with, no matter what you're angry at, bitter from afraid of, doubting, wondering, how long, O Lord, I want you to realize, God dwells in you. You are never alone. From the youngest of you to the oldest. If you're fighting for your family, struggling for contentment, if you feel like your marriage isn't what it can be or should be, if you're wondering about the physical ailments you're facing, if you're longing for friendship, if you wish you had more security, or you're feeling overwhelmed by the push of the culture that seems to be more and more anti-Bible, anti-Christ, anti-God, which means maybe anti-us, Jesus wants you to know, I'm preparing a place for you, and I'm in you. In other words... Why Jesus says what he does, and look at verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my word, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. What's he saying? You will never be at home with God then unless he is at home with you now. You see, I always find it fascinating when people tell me they want to go to heaven. Everybody assumes, if you really talk to people, very few people assume they're not going to heaven. If anybody believes in life after death and you ask them, most people think they're going to heaven. Here's what we do. Often we go, how do you know you're going to go to heaven? And there's a great little video right now making a way around by Alistair Begg about the, the man on the cross. And he says, when he gets to heaven, right? And he says, how, why should we let you in? And he says, because the man on the middle cross told me I could come. But if you want to get into a conversation with people and they think they're going to heaven, ask them this question. Why do you want to go to heaven? Because I guarantee you, that'll make people think. Because you know what makes heaven heaven? It's not golden streets. It's not even golden walls, whatever your view of revelation is. What makes heaven heaven is you are in an eternal, visible, vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. And so the reality is, this passage says, it, the only way the first part of John 14 floats your boat that Jesus is right now actively preparing a place for us to be physically, eternally with God is for you to realize God is physically indwelling you who claim to be Christians now. And so our faith becomes sight. Our hope becomes fulfilled. This is why it leads us to see how only those who love Jesus will understand what's about to happen. And so the question is, We'll trust him even when things go wrong. Just like me on that zip line. Once I understood that my safety didn't rest in my hands, it rested in that harness. Guess what? I relaxed my hands and leaned into that harness. And I was able to be at peace. And this is what's happening. This is what Jesus is doing. Richard Phillips is correct in saying, this suggests, John 14, 22 to 24, that there are two kinds of people in the world. 
There are those who live as if Christ is alive and those for whom Jesus is little more than a figurehead of their religion. So let me ask you all, which one are you? Which one are you? Really? Is Jesus really alive for you today? Or are you merely religious? Christians who recognize and realize that Jesus is now living at the right hand of God and that we can know him better will make this privilege the overriding passion of their lives. And we do this while we do our jobs, raise our kids, engage in relationships, and do all manner of worldly things. But all will be done unto our living and present Lord who loved us and called us into love for him. And that's why verse 24 says what it does. That second type of person. That person who might know of Jesus, even acknowledge Jesus, but doesn't believe in Jesus. You see, the difference is, remember when me on the zip line? I had the harness on. I physically knew it was there, but I wasn't trusting in it. I was trusting in my hand strength. I was trusting in my might. And you know what all that did was cause me anxiety and pain and hurt and frustration. This is what Jesus is telling his disciples. That's why obedience and trust and dependence are the marks of someone that believes in Jesus. But now look at verses 25 to 26 because Jesus not only promised his presence, now he promises his truth. He promises his truth. He goes, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the comforter, the fancy Greek word is paraclete, which means another of the same kind, all right, because we're talking about God, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, I would submit to you this morning Calvary Baptist, listen to me. And those of you that are visiting both here and online, if there was ever three verses in the Bible or two verses in the Bible, 25 and 26, that are often overlooked and misunderstood, thus misapplied, it would be John chapter 14, 25 and 26. And the reason is quite simple. Because it's something we all too often do when it comes to reading the Bible and applying it to our lives. We go, oh, that's cool. So, Jesus says that he'll be with us and he's going to send the comforter to us and he'll bring things to my remembrance. That's cool. No, no, no. Stop and think about what he's saying. What are the ramifications of this? Paul must have gotten this because in Romans chapter 8 verse 5 he says this to the Romans. For those who live according to the flesh, now watch the condition to this, set their minds on the things of the flesh. In other words, they're consumed with the here and now. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And so he explains this, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm going to be honest. It is very easy to simply dwell on Life, COVID, government, grades, career, accomplishments, retirement, vacations, 
health, food, what we want, what we don't want, dating, weddings, anniversaries, family dynamics. It can flood and dominate every part of your mind. Let me just ask you now, how's that working out for everybody? Honestly. But if we deal with life, but our mind is set on, remember this old hymn of the faith? This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. The treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. You see, Francis Chan did this illustration, right? He's got this big giant rope, and it spreads all across the room multiple times, and he's got a little piece of two-inch tape at the end of it, and he basically reminds everybody, that's your earthly life right there. And yet all of that rope spreads out. That's all of eternity. And yet how much time do we spend trying to do everything we can in that little part of our lives, and we miss that? This little part is meant to prepare us to live all of this. This is what Jesus is getting at. This is what he's saying. Jesus reminds these 11, I have spoken things to you, and all the while I've been with you, I've been teaching you, instructing you, preparing you, um, discipling you. And this is why Paul says what he does. You have to see how amazing this is for John, too, the writer of this. John chapter 14, verses 25 and 26. Do you remember that he was called one of the sons of thunder? See, John was all about truth. But if you violated the truth, then he was all about you needed to die by the truth. And the reason he got this nickname is because some guys were trying to serve Jesus, and John and James didn't think that they were part of the team. And so they literally asked Jesus, can we pray fire down on these fellas? And so that's how they got the nickname, Sons of Thunder. And yet, by the time you get to 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which David is preaching through, you're going to learn that this John, he had learned, no, it's truth attached to love truth. The truth of Jesus allows us to see and to feel and to know and to learn the love of Jesus. It's a relationship and it's a transformative relationship. Paul David Tripp says, truth without love is harshness. It may be right, but you ignore it because of its bite. Truth and love together transform. And so what Jesus is doing here, he's saying, guys, I've been with you. I have loved you. And now not only that, yes, I'm leaving, but I'm going to come back to you in the form of the third person of the Trinity. And this uh, Holy Spirit is going to remind you of everything I've ever told you. By the way, commercial here, this is why you can trust your Bibles. All right, Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy, sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. Why? For teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Peter, who is listening to this, would write in his letter in 2 Peter, he says, first of all, you should know this, no prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation. Because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. You know what Peter's writing about, right? He's writing about these two verses. Jesus says, guys, 
I have been teaching you and telling you everything you need to know. And when I leave and the Holy Spirit comes, he will then remind you and teach you how to understand and how to apply everything you already know. So stop commercial again. Stop looking for new revelation. Start resting in what you're already supposed to know. Stop asking God to speak something new to you. Start living out what he's already told us. That's why one of my favorite stories is about this young fella who goes to uh, D.L. Moody's church, and he's preaching on John 3.16, and he does it for an entire week, night after night after night, preaches John 3.16. Moody comes back, his wife says, listen, you got to go hear this little fella. He's a way better preacher than you are. That's encouragement from your wife, isn't it? Go to your church and hear a guy preach who's better than you. And Moody says that when he heard him preach, he had never seen the love of God. But some of Moody's deacons were upset that the guy was preaching the same passage. So they questioned him. And he said, listen, when the church gets John 3.16, then I'll move on to another passage. We're so busy trying to find something new instead of being transformed and resting in what is right in front of us. Both of these passages are fulfilled right in front of us in these verses. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is going to teach you and remind you. Notice what it says in the verse. Jesus says, all the things that I have told you. This is not about new revelation. It's about the right application of what Jesus has already revealed. So my friends, the role of the Holy Spirit is not to tell you and I new things. It's to get you to understand and apply what Jesus has already told us. So that's why you need to trust the blessed truth of God's word. This was a a great assurance to the disciples that I'm going to use you to write scripture. The great assurance for you today, for some of you are younger and you're right on the precipice of major decisions and a culture gone crazy. And I get it. You're trying to figure out, will I follow God or will this just be my religion of my grandparents or my parents or whatever? Listen to me. Don't look for something new. Go to something as old as your Bible and read it over and over and over again. And to every young person and young adult here, I promise you this, if you will study this book, it will change your life. And I tell you that because I'm not a salesman, I'm a client. I remember what it was to be 14, 15, 16, 17. I remember what it was to graduate from high school. I remember what it was to get engaged. I remember what it was to get married and move out. I remember what it was to make the decision, is this whole life of faith that my parents taught me actually true, or is it just my new religion now? And in June of 1993, God made himself abundantly clear to me. And that was the day when I stepped out from the shadow of my parents and said, no, I am going to follow Jesus because Jesus is mine and I am his. Can I ask you this morning? So many of you, I haven't told many of you, if not all of you, I haven't told you anything new. This passage isn't groundbreaking. This is why Paul said in Romans chapter 12, if you want to be transformed, if you want your mind made new, Then you got to renew your mind by understanding the Word of God. But let me give you one example, and then I'm done. I'll do part two of this next week. Let me take you to a book like Song of Solomon. Let me show you how it's so easy for us just to read the Bible 
and not engage your heart and mind in what God is already revealing to us and how will you let the Holy Spirit teach you and remind you. In Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 10, here's what Solomon says. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Now, what if you spent all week reminding yourselves, I belong to God, and God's desire is for me? Have you ever meditated on that verse? How much time do we spend asking the Spirit of God to teach us and remind us? If you are worrying about your children... If you were like, Lord, why am I struggling with my kids? Do you go, well, wait a second. I remember, I belong to God and his desire is for me. If you're wondering, am I going to be single for the rest of my life? Oh, wait a second. I belong to God and his desire is for me. If you're walking through chronic pain or terminal illness or you've lost loved ones or you're estranged from your parents or you're struggling with dating and belonging or friendships and you're like, I'm just tired and scared and upset. I belong to God and God's desire is for me. Scotty Smith prays this verse and listen what he says. He goes, Jesus, free us from never, rarely or barely believing you love us like this. Underbelieving the gospel and its stunning implications, or overbelieving our fears and our fantasies and our foolishness. This is what Jesus means in verses 25 and 26 on the role of the Holy Spirit. It's for you to be brave enough to pick this book up and read it today, tomorrow, the next day. Not just to check off a list, not just to fulfill a reading program but to actually read it and go, wait a second, this is meant to me. This is God speaking to me. Now, everybody of you in this room, what would change on your attitude, your emotions, your perspective, your discouragement, your despair, your anger, your pride, your stubbornness, your feeling like I did, feeling it's all on me. I've got to hang on. I've got to control my life. My safety and security depends on me. And when Jesus says, dude, just rest in me. I've written an entire book to you. I've made it so you can go to the Father at any moment and go, our Father who art in heaven. Guys, that's not a religious prayer. That's the anthem by which Christians live. And to you that are younger, I want to tell you, if you'll grab a hold of this, let me be so bold as to say, you'll change the world. And for those of you that are older, do you remember that movie that Tom Hanks did at Christmas, The Polar Express, and the bell that stops ringing as people get older? I find this is what happens to Christians. The older we get, you're either going to really keep that bell ringing, I need Jesus, I need his word, I need prayer, or you just start to settle into living life with a couple of verses. I remember one of my boys listening to a testimony time at our church in my last ministry, and we were driving home, and one of my sons said to me, 
Dad, these testimonies are always the same. And it sounds like people tell me that Jesus saved them in 1973, but it doesn't sound like God has done a thing for them since. So for young people, grab a hold of this, and I promise you, this life will be exciting. And for those of you that are older, is it time for you and I to go back to John chapter 14 and go, Lord, by your spirit, teach me and remind me again of what counts. And next week, we will learn in verses 27 to 31 that when you understand the presence of God and you understand the truth of God, it equips us to go live out the mission of God. Because one of the greatest sentences comes in verse 30 of this passage, right? When he says, the ruler of this world is coming for me and he got no claims over me. As the cathedral quartet used to say, if that don't light your fire, your wood's wet. All right? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the power and life of your word. Spirit of the living God, would you show us that we don't have to pine for new things when you have given us all we need. So Lord, if there's somebody here hurting or searching, angry, bitter, frustrated, I pray that they will let go of the zip line of life that they think they're in control of and Father, rather settle into the word of God, the harness of your word, knowing that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is preparing us a home and takes up residence within us. Lord, help the young people here to realize this God is real and trustworthy and help the older folks not to grow weary in well-doing, not to grow tired and fatigued. Lord, may we as Older folk, not think that we are going to just slide into heaven, settled with the past. But Father, make us to have that attitude of Caleb when he went to Joshua and he's in his 70s and he says, give me this mountain. And Lord, all that is possible if we realize that, Father, you're with us and we can trust your word. So go before us this day, this week. May we trust you. And may we realize that whatever we do today, whatever we're feeling, Spirit of the living God, you are making up your residence. We are the temple of God himself. And may that change us. In Jesus' name.